This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. May God be pleased to send us another great Pope Gregory. Today, the Return to Order Moment is honored to bring you two essays written by the founder of the international TFP movement, Professor Plenio Correa de Oliveira. Both essays describe the virtues and actions of popes named Gregory. However, their names, their loyalty to the Catholic faith, and the fact that both occupied the throne of St. Peter are all these two men have in common. 400 years separated them, and the problems that they faced were very different. The first is Pope Gregory I, usually known as St. Gregory the Great. He was born about the year 540, became Pope in 590, and ruled until his death in 604. So now we present Professor Plenio's essay, How St. Gregory the Great Planted the Seeds of the Middle Ages. St. Gregory the Great lived in the 6th century. He is considered a founder of the Middle Ages in the West. In the Dictionnaire de la Conversation et de la Lecture by William Duckett, we find the following biographical entry about him. Quote, St. Gregory was born in Rome, the son of a wealthy senator. After his education in his youth, Emperor Justus considered him worthy of being elevated to the office of Praetor due to his considerable knowledge. In this office, the young man later became famous in the Eternal City for his intelligence, mature judgment, and extreme love of justice. However, some reproached him because of the great luxury and worldly splendor in his clothes and habits. They feared that he would squander the immense fortune his father had left him. Due to his piety, Gregory struggled incessantly against this pomp. Upon his father's death, he suddenly appeared as a new man. He ordered the founding of seven monasteries, six of which were in Sicily. He gave away his rich clothes and precious furniture to help the poor and took the monastic habit in St. Andrew's Abbey, which he founded. Against his will, his brethren soon chose him to be the abbot. Fasting, prayer, and study became his only occupations. Impressed by some young Englishmen for sale at Rome's slave market, he lamented that these islanders were not Christian. Thus, he obtained permission from Pope Benedict I to preach the faith in Great Britain. However, no sooner was he on his way than both the clergy and the people forced him to return. He was made a deacon of the Roman Church in 578. In 580, Pope Pelagius II sent him to Constantinople, where he gained the esteem of the entire court. On his return to Rome, Pope Pelagius sought to keep him as his secretary. However, Gregory considered the office too burdensome to accept. Finally, by dint of praying, he was free to return to his monks. Upon the death of Pelagius, the people of Rome acclaimed him as Pope. Gregory trembled in fear. He fled the Eternal City, wrote the Emperor begging him not to confirm his election, and hid in a cave. The people discovered him and took him to Rome. Despite his protest, the populace enthroned him on September 13, 590. 
The holy man had enemies who accused him of dishonesty and hypocrisy, even though his entire life disproved such accusations. The simplicity of his home attested to his modesty and humility. He devoted his income to help the poor. His constant concern was to instruct the people. According to Emperor Martinius, he put an end to the schism of the bishops of Istria. He also obtained the conversion of the Lombards and the destruction of Arianism, for which he expressed extraordinary joy in his letters to Queen Theodolinda. Yet Gregory did not forget the English. Led by the monk Augustine, his missionaries departed in 595 and arrived two years later in the kingdom of Kent, where Queen Berta had prepared his triumph. King Ethelbert and a large part of his people converted. He had less trouble reforming the liturgy than keeping discipline. After composing the antiphonary, he regulated the order of psalms, prayers, and songs. In short, he established an academy for singers, the Schola Cantorum, and, whip in hand, gave young clerics lessons in plain chant. He ordered pagan temples not to be destroyed, but to be transformed into churches. So much work and fatigue did not favor the cure of the illnesses that never ceased to beset him. Gout often kept him bedridden, but its horrible pains did not stop his prodigious activity. No pope has written more letters than Gregory. He had an extraordinary flair to distinguish truth from slander in accusations against priests. He was a terrible adversary to forgers, witches, simoniacs, and schismatics. This great pontiff died on March 12, 604, after 13 years, 6 months, and 10 days in office. His comments on Holy Scripture exerted considerable influence on Christian thought in the Middle Ages, earning him the title of Doctor of the Church. With St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, and St. Jerome, he is one of the four great doctors of the Latin Church. The consideration that St. Gregory the Great was a true founder of the Middle Ages is fully grounded. Whether as a simple priest, deacon, or pope, we see his extraordinarily rich life serve somehow to close the last remnant, the last crack in the door that separated us from pagan antiquity. He opened the door to the new age about to be born. Regarding pagan antiquity, we see how he fought the remnants of paganism. He ordered the last existing pagan temples not to be destroyed, but to cease pagan worship and be used for Catholic worship. He exterminated Arianism, a plague from the Western Roman Empire. The Arians penetrated Europe and perverted the barbarians who invaded the Western Roman Empire. He did away with immorality and other objectionable evils from antiquity. At the same time, he built a new age. He was a great founder of monasteries. The expansion of co-nobitic life is one of his most characteristic works that marked the early Middle Ages. He was himself the superior of a monastery. He worked to establish plain chant, 
later known as Gregorian chant. In doing so, the great Pope presents history with a picturesque scene. Here is a doctor of the church and an eminent politician, whip in hand, teaching plain chant to his students. He does not hold a stick, but a whip to discipline his students when needed. This picturesque image would merit for an illumination or perhaps a stained glass window. He properly gave a voice to the Middle Ages by establishing plain chant, as it was the great singing voice of the Middle Ages from beginning to end. He imprinted his character on Benedictine life, which St. Benedict had set in motion, but had not yet taken on the stamp of firmness and definition that he provided. On the other hand, his missionary sense is admirable. We see him among those who inaugurated the idea of missions in England and Ireland. These missions gave rise to the outflow of a great current of missionaries that returned to the continent to evangelize Germany. Thus, we see him sowing the seeds of the Middle Ages. We see him deal, albeit to no avail, with the great wound of Christendom at that time, which was the Roman Empire of the East, increasingly prone to schism. This empire had always staggered between heresy and Catholic truth. The empire eventually fell apart. Yet he tried to secure that wall of the city of Jesus Christ, which was threatening to fall. His lack of success is another example of Byzantium's supreme ingratitude to the Pope's zeal. Men like him were even well-liked and influential. However, they failed to uproot the accursed city's immorality, softness, recklessness, and penchant for heresy. Therefore, we can say that this great mind dealt with all of the problems of his time. He analyzed and faced them while writing works that became pillars of medieval thought. His most rich and admirable life was fully dedicated to the service of the Catholic Church and Christian civilization. What would St. Gregory say if he were to resurrect today? From the height of heaven, what would he say about our world, so different from the one that he knew? He lived in a rough period of history, marked by disorder and even blatant crimes. However, while the people participated in evil deeds, they also acclaimed a saint as Pope. The saint fled from them, but they tracked him down and placed him in the papacy. They could discern a saint from a non-saint and preferred the saint over the unholy. Would the same thing happen today? Are there many who would flee from the papacy? Would people today go after a saint to take him to the papacy? How everything has changed. Let us ask St. Gregory I, St. Gregory the Great, to transform our epoch. After the purifying punishments it must undergo, let it be turned into a new and even more splendorous Middle Ages, a request that he, one of the founders of the most glorious Middle Ages, will promptly understand. Pope St. Gregory the Great was so influential that 15 subsequent popes took his name. 
Not all of them lived up to his example, but one in particular did. He was also canonized a saint, Gregory VII. Pope St. Gregory VII was born about the year 1015. He was pope for 12 years, from 1073 to 1085. Professor Plenio summed up his importance in the title of an essay he wrote in 1972, St. Gregory VII, the Pope par excellence. One quick note. In two places, Professor Plenio refers to Pope Paul VI, who was pope at the time this essay was written. Certainly, it takes little imagination to substitute Pope Francis's name, for the situations that Professor Plenio described still exist today. And now, St. Gregory VII, the Pope par excellence. The great Benedictine scholar, Dom Guéranger, says St. Gregory VII was undoubtedly the Pope par excellence in the history of the Church. An indomitable fighter against the Eastern Schism, the heresies of the Empire in revolt, and a usurper anti-Pope. He was also the creator of the Crusades, which liberated the Holy Sepulchre of our Lord. However, that giant in defense of the church did not neglect the humble. He knew how to appreciate the sufferings of a humble priest faithful to the church. He surrounded this humble one with admiration and tenderness. In a letter to a poor Milanese priest whom the Simonians had mutilated in a barbaric way, he writes to that obscure soldier of the church, quote, if we venerate the memory of saints who died after their members were cut by iron and celebrate the suffering of those who neither sword nor suffering could separate from faith in Christ, you, whose nose and ears were cut for the sake of his name, are even more praiseworthy. You have earned a grace to which should be added perseverance that gives full resemblance to the saints. While the integrity of your body no longer exists, the interior man, who is renewed day by day, has developed in you with great success. The mutilations dishonor your face, but in you, the image of God, who is the radiance of justice, was made even more graceful by your wounds and more attractive by the deformation imprinted on your arms. Does the church not say of herself in the Song of Songs, I am black but beautiful, O daughter of Jerusalem? Therefore, these mutilations did not diminish your inner beauty. Your priestly character, which is holy, needs to be recognized much more in the integrity of virtues than in that of limbs, has not suffered any loss. Did Emperor Constantine not respectfully kiss on a bishop's face the scar over an eye that had been pulled out because of his fidelity to the name of Christ? Does the example of priests and the ancient scriptures not show us that martyrs should be kept in the exercise of sacred ministries even after suffering mutilations in their limbs? May you, therefore, a martyr to Christ, be full of self-assurance in the Lord. Look at yourself having taken one more step in the priesthood. It was conferred on you with holy oils and is today sealed with your blood. We know that the enemies of the Holy Church are your enemies and persecutors. Do not fear them or tremble in their presence, 
because we in the apostolic see watch with love under our tutelage, your person, and everything that concerns you. And if you need to turn to us, we accept your appeal right away and are ready to receive you with joy and great honor as soon as you come to us at this holy see. Unquote. Here, Dom Geringer makes two statements. The first is that St. Gregory VII was the Pope par excellence, the Pope of Popes, the perfect model of a Pope. The second is that he carried out his papacy with high combativeness and profound paternity. He gives an example with that letter that you just heard to a priest of the Diocese of Milan who was severely maimed. Before going any further, I would like to comment on his statement, which might seem even bold if it did not come from a man with Dom Geringer's authority, that St. Gregory VII was the Pope of Popes. Since there have been so many holy popes, and the Church teaches that one should avoid comparing saints, one could almost say that Dom Geringer exaggerated. However, it seems to me that he did well, and that the statement is true. Properly speaking, he did not say that St. Gregory VII was the holiest of popes. He said that he was the Pope of popes, something similar, but not the same thing. He meant that, during the turbulent history of his pontificate, St. Gregory VII was able to highlight the characteristics features of the supreme pontificate with more emphasis than other popes. What were these characteristic features? First, more than the others, it was his famous episode with Henry IV, Emperor of the Holy German Roman Empire, which we have discussed several times. Another, a sign of his mercy, is the letter you have just heard read. On what occasions did St. Gregory VII show his outstanding papal prowess? Was it mainly for his kindness or for his combativeness? You will find episodes of kindness like that throughout the history of the Church, including on the part of popes that the Church has not canonized. Some are possibly even saints. Others might not be. Still others are far from being. But you find acts of generosity, goodness, and protection from the afflicted throughout the history of the papacy. What you find much more rarely are acts of energy, such as the one Gregory VII took with the emperor of the Holy German Roman Empire. You remember the reason for the disagreement between the pope and the emperor? It was the famous question of investiture. Many bishops of the Holy Empire were both feudal lords of the territory of their dioceses and the local bishop. They combined the spiritual and the temporal powers in their own hands. Using this pretext, Henry IV implied that he had the right to nominate bishops for these dioceses, and shortly thereafter for all dioceses in Germany. Behind this claim is the idea that emperors or kings had the right to appoint bishops. Henry implied that this right belonged to the temporal power, the head of state, and not to the pope. 
Deep down, it is the equivalent to saying that the Catholic Church is not a perfect society, entirely sovereign in its sphere, which governs itself, but rather that it is a society subordinate to the state. Once the emperor appoints a bishop, he must be led by the emperor. Whoever grants that position guides the one he places there. This was the logic that was implied by Henry IV's argument. Whoever confers an office has authority over that office. Therefore, the principle they tried to affirm is that the church should be under the orders of the emperor. That led to another even more serious consequence that temporal things are worth more than spiritual ones, and therefore what is temporal is worth more than what is eternal. In the final analysis, that means that the full extent of the church's supernatural divine character is not to be taken seriously. This is equivalent to a principle of disbelief and doubt placed at the root of the relations between church and state. Therefore, the church could not accept the investiture of bishops by emperors. That gave rise to a long series of conflicts that culminated in that episode with Henry IV. The emperor wanted to give the investiture to several bishops and went ahead and did so. The pope excommunicated him and, ipso facto, released all of his subjects from their oath of fidelity to him. As you know, in the Middle Ages, society was organized based on a set of reciprocal allegiances with a moral foundation. A manual worker, a peasant, owed allegiance to his feudal lord and made a commitment to him. The feudal lord had a superior lord, his suzerain, to whom he pledged allegiance. And it went on from there all the way to the head of state. When the Pope released vassals from that commitment, they were released from obedience to the head of state. With that, the head of state was automatically deposed. And when no one obeys a head of state, he is automatically deposed. That is what happened to Henry IV. He did not imagine that the Pope would have the courage to excommunicate such a high potentate. He did not imagine that once excommunicated, everyone would walk away from him. He did not take seriously the principle that an excommunicated monarch cannot continue to lead a Catholic country. This is a profoundly Catholic principle, because one cannot imagine that a son of darkness should rule over children of light. The excommunication was issued. Henry stayed in his palace, and no one in Germany revolted against him. However, life started to run without him. No one obeyed him any longer. No one consulted him. No one visited him. Other powers were established. Even his bodyguards and palace employees started to leave him. He could see the moment when he would have to live alone, washing floors, glasses, and dishes. He realized that he was virtually deposed. At that point, he crossed the Alps in the middle of the winter. This was a tremendous trip at that time. One had to travel on a sled and cling to it face down to cross large snow cliffs without falling off. 
he went to Canossa, a city on the northern side of Italy, where the Pope was staying in the castle of Countess Matilda, a staunch defender of the Holy See. Henry IV stayed out there on his knees, in penitence garb, three days and three nights, with snow falling on him, asking the Pope for forgiveness. The Pope did not want to forgive, because he did not believe in Henry's sincerity. Finally, at the request of others, he ended up forgiving the Emperor. That momentous episode in church history forever marked the relationship between state and church, underlining the supremacy of spiritual power over temporal power, the supremacy of the church over all governments, the church's perfect sovereignty, and recognition of the Pope as the supreme hierarch on earth. Not as hierarch of the merely temporal order, but placed in such a situation that he had precedence of honor over the emperor in all meetings and jurisdiction over purely spiritual matters and spiritual aspects of the issues that include both religious and political aspects. The unbreakable force with which St. Gregory VII overwhelmed that power in his time guaranteed this. No action by any pope against any temporal power or potentate shows such energy. There are compelling episodes of popes acting against temporal power, as there are also episodes of exceptional softness. But even the very holy popes, such as St. Pius V or St. Pius X, for example, were not given the opportunity to mark their superiority toward the temporal government in that way. Accordingly, St. Gregory VII ended up being the pure representation of the principle of the supremacy of the spiritual, albeit unarmed, over the temporal, the supremacy of celestial over terrestrial, and ultimately, of God's supremacy over all creation. This is the magnificent meaning of St. Gregory VII's energetic action. Hence, when Dom Guéringer wrote that he was the Pope par excellence, in whom the virtues proper to a sovereign pontiff shone in all their grandiose splendor. Does his example lead us to take any consideration about our days? Today's events are full of suggestions in this regard. For if St. Gregory VII were alive today, he would promote a crusade against Russia excommunicate all communist heads of state, excommunicate collaborationist priests, take a completely belligerent attitude toward communism, at least spiritually. If he had the means, he would decree a crusade. In short, he would turn the course of events in a direction diametrically opposed to the one that Paul VI is taking. Many seek to justify Paul VI's attitude by saying that the power of communism is so great that it is necessary to give in. That is absolutely not true. Here we have the magnificent example of St. Gregory VII. The Church must not retreat in the face of any human power. She must not give in to anything because she has God's protection. 
She must do her duty all the way to the end at all costs. Then she will end up winning. One sees God's protection of the church throughout her history, not only because she has great power and won on this or that occasion, but because on some occasions she had no power in the face of her adversary, but won anyway because providence intervened on her side. So today, we must ask Our Lady, through the intercession of St. Gregory VII, to lift this dreadful and extremely dark punishment from the Church, which is to be afflicted with the current crisis. May she give us a Pope who is a true son of light, a Pope who is a true follower of St. Gregory VII, who amid all of today's storms faces the earthly powers with determination and vigor, overthrows what must be brought down, and establishes what must be established. That is the prayer we must raise to Our Lady, the moment when a fortuitous circumstance, a coincidence, brings to mind the memory of that great pontiff. This concludes... May God be pleased to send us another great Pope Gregory. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.